0: just, I've just got to apologize to the radio listener out there. We are broadcasting from a den of sin and debauchery. We are broadcasting from a hotbed of total depravity that makes Solomon Gomorrah look like Circleville, Ohio. We are right in the heart of Greenwich Village. And you all know what Greenwich Village is like. And we're right in the heart of the heart of Greenwich Village, right on 7th Avenue South, where, where truth, where beauty, where poetry flows like a deep, rich stream heading towards the Hudson. <laughs> and then it takes a left turn, <laughs> and we're right here in the limelight which is I say in the heart of Greenwich village now these are all very special things and on a saturday night and saturday is a special night in america as we know there are there is one thing that we must do before we do anything else tonight this is a fantastic anniversary a purely american anniversary are you aware that exactly 90 years ago tonight General George Armstrong Custer laid a fantastic egg.
1: <laughs>
0: Are you aware that 90 years ago today right now George Armstrong Custer a great American general really pulled a fantastic
1: booboo.
0: Oh yeah, the sho- the, the Cheyennes and the Sioux and today I saw on television did you see him? I saw an Indian who is Ninety-eight years old. He was eight years old at the time of the giant fiasco, and the interviewer asked him. <laughs> he says, uh, "Do you uh, Cheyennes consider uh, General Armstrong uh, Custer?
1: Do
0: you consider General Custer a great general?" And he said, uh, "No." And he says, "Well, uh, what do you consider him? He says, we won." <laughs> There's this old dupper, He says, we won. And tonight, the Siouxs, are you aware that tonight, the Siouxs and the Cheyennes all over the country, this is their 4th of July.
1: <laughs>
0: that is a fact. They are celebrating, you know. They had a fantastic victory, you know, and it's like the Mets. You know, they don't win many, but, you know, when they win them, they celebrate big, so... <laughs> So I I thought about this, I said, gee, that's that's, that's a purely American thing, that here was a guy who laid an egg, George Armstrong Custer, General Custer, and by the way, do you know anything about Custer? Custer was a real showboat. He had long blonde hair. There is even rumor that he put it up at night. Yeah, that's a fact. There are many rumors that he put him up, you know. He would disappear to his tent with his dippity do. you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, you know, he is not to be disturbed for the next 45 minutes. I could just see that runner coming in, you know, fantastic is breaking out, and he runs in, the general says, I'm in my curlers, get out! There he is, you see, and he had this long, blonde hair, And and do do any of you know how General Custer got his commission? What a fantastic story that is. General Custer was a second lieutenant. I mean, just a plain ordinary, there's a great phrase in the Army, which I can't use on the air. (laughs) You have to fill in those blanks, a blank, blank second lieutenant. He's just a plain ordinary one, see, and he's walking around And somewhere, now this is a true story, it's one of those unbelievable moments, somewhere way up, and it's in the Civil War, see, very official war. There's official guys like Grant and Sheridan and Burnside walking around. And here is this second lieutenant who practically got kicked out of West Point for goofing off. He's down there way in the boondocks. And somebody, get this, made a mistake in the war department. And all of a sudden these orders came down to be made Brigadier General. It was a mistake. And here he is. Yeah, it's a true story. He's sitting in his tent, you know, he's a second lieutenant. You know, everything's going rotten. He's got this crummy squad that he's running. Bunch of idiotic dog faces who are angry and they've been on KP all day and he's been running the scene. When all of a sudden the guy comes running down from the headquarters. He says, uh, sir, uh, sir, the orders have just come. And he looks up, and it's a major who is calling him Sir. And he says, uh, what orders? He says, Sir, your your confirmation just arrived. And he looked at it incredibly. He was now a brigadier general. It says to be made brigadier general, 2nd Lieutenant George Armstrong Custer. Well, he did something that none of us would do. What would be the first thing you'd do?
1: <laughs>
0: well, the first thing you do, you'd obviously know that somebody loused up. The first thing, every one of us, I'll tell you, there's a difference between, between guys that make it and the rest of us. The first thing that most of us would do, we'd go down to the tent and say, Hey, there's a mistake.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: isn't that true? You'd say, Oh, what is this, you know? And they say, holy smoke, give me that thing, and they'd rip it up, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: Get back to your tent, Lieutenant. <laughs> oh no, what did what did Custer do? He grabbed that paper. He took one look at it. Thirty seconds later, he's at the tailor's shop. <laughs> That's the truth. They turned him out a brigadier general's uniform that didn't stop. Red, white, and blue sleeves that had a big stars. He had neon stars. He discovered neon, you know. <laughs> he had stars that lit up. He's a brigadier general. And and he's got the papers, see, and he walks down now, absolutely all by himself. He walks down through the company street, and guys are fainting, you know. He's a 21-year-old brigadier general. You know, and they they, they remember this lieutenant that looked like that. Also, holy smokes, and they're saluting. He walks into the army headquarters right where they had sent the papers from. He says, I need transportation, 21,000 men, and uh, I'm going to go to the Battle of Shiloh. Get on the ball.
1: <laughs>
0: no, this is the truth. And they look at this new brigadier general. They can't believe it. Somebody gets on the telegraph wire and, and wires Washington and says, "Who? What is this thing, this new general? And in Washington, they were so embarrassed at the War Department that they wired back and they says, let him keep it. <laughs> now there is a lesson for us. You see what he did? He played it big. He went all the way. He didn't go down and give him a chance. He yeah, I made a mistake That reminds me, you know, I read that story of Cruster and I thought, gee, what a what a fantastic that is a true dream situation. How many of us have had fantasies like that? We're laying in our sack, you know. The phone rings. We get up, we stagger. We pick it up, yeah. White House. They want what? Are you sure? Look, my name is Charles Williams Applerot. <laughs> the president is on the phone. He wants me to come down and take charge of the Defense Department
1: <laughs>
0: because of the ideas that I I was given out the other day—a chock full of nuts. They heard about <laughs> You know, these fantastic moments, you just think, I'm a kid. Let me tell you a story. Boy, I'll tell you, it was it was an unbelievable moment in my life. I am working in the mail room of this giant steel mill. Now, oh, by the way, are you aware that there's no such thing as a mail room any longer in the jazzy Madison Avenue agencies? It is called the communication division. So you can't work in the mail room anymore, you know? And and, and, and the, the guy that carries the basket between the 23rd and the 24th floor, he is known as a trainee liaison officer now. <laughs> you know, that, that reminds me, incidentally, I'm driving on the turnpike today. I'm a great student of the way they name cars. I think this is very significant. And there was a time, oh yeah, only the British would name a car Minx. It's a little thing, you know. You know that the the Japanese name their cars little things like Fair Lady, little subtle things. Our cars are named usually after elements like Tempest, a thundering Tempest, Fury, Anger. That's what runs through the names of the cars. And today, did you see this new one? I'm driving along the turnpike, and here is this Oxford gray car ahead of me. Charcoal gray, see? It's even got little button down collars in the back. (laughs) Instead of a trunk, it's got buttons, you know. (laughs) Buttons down, and I drive past it, and on the side it says, in beautiful block Gothic letters, kind of stainless steel, very simple, you know, it says, Pontiac Executive. Isn't that a great name for a car? Pontiac Executive. Can't you imagine their lower price model is executive trainee,
1: <laughs> you, know?
0: you know? And their sport model is PR man. It's all chrome, stainless steel, you know. Yeah, you know and I thought, gee, this is a great way to name a car. And I, thought, and, and I thought to myself, gee, isn't it sad? Can't you imagine this guy who works in the mail room, and he goes out and buys himself a Pontiac executive? he drives down the street, and there it is, it says it for him. As a matter of fact, did you hear that that beer commercial, that ale commercial? Oh yeah, there's a lot more going today when you buy something than just to buy it. There is a commercial that comes on, Valentine, Valentine, Valentine ale. And this guy comes on, he says, yes, ale is the drink for more manly men. Yes, ale is more manly. When you want to step up to manhood, Yes, buy yourself a Ballantine ale, the Manlier brew, and then this voice comes in and says, "I like being an ale man," and it sounds like Ursula Andress. (laughs) You hear that scene, you know? And I thought to myself, you know, gee, isn't it easy? So you can be a man. All you got to do it would settle all those problems of identity. You know that all these guys are always writing about Al being these people. All you got to do is go to your local tavern and order a Ballantine ale sip it you can feel the hair growing on your chest
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, and there's one of these commercials you know it's very suspicious because it shows about six tall thin guys with wavy hair all on the beach drinking ale and there ain't a girl in sight
1: <laughs>
0: have you seen that crowd on TV you know they keep going woohoo did you bring the valentine chucky
1: you know <laughs>
0: oh, life is getting rich, I'll tell you. Well, you know, you know, I, I'm thinking of George Armstrong Custer and his great moment. You see, I think it is. <laughs> I think one of the reasons why we make a hero out of George Armstrong Custer. And by the way, I heard a, 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 an army officer on the air today. He said that what Custer did, if he did it today, he would get court-martialed. Yeah, he, he really lost up. You heard what he did. He sent all of his, he busted his troops all up into little groups, and one started a USO show or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they got off their horses, and they were having a picnic and everything. And the Sioux came down and really gave them what for, Say, But I, I could see why we make General Custer a national hero. It's because he did something that secretly we all want to do. He made it. And he made it by cheating. Yeah, he became a brigadier general by by, by getting the wrong orders. And in addition to that, his greatest claim to fame is a defeat. How more American? I mean, seriously, this is, Custer is due for a big renaissance in this age of Met worshippers. I mean, people who worship the Mets because they lose, you know. Now, that he's a perfect Met right there from the beginning. And I, and I thought about this. Have you ever gone out to watch the Mets? The, the thing about the Mets that is so funny is they're like, they're like, in a way, they're very much like custard. They have beautiful uniforms. You ever watch those Met uniforms in color? They look fantastic. Oh, it's got a big red and black and white, big Mets across the front, big numbers that light up. Yeah, on the back, you know, big number seven or number six, which, by the way, indicates that Mets batting average. <laughs> you know, 21. He's bat-
1: <laughs> they don't show
0: you the zero before it, you know. All right, all right I want up. Okay, fellow, we give you your show after we go the air, okay? And here's the story of the Mets, all perfectly outlined. This is the day of the losers. And one time, I'm a kid. And I am working in the steel mill. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever worked in a gigantic corporation that is so big, it's unimaginable. I mean, it stretches for hundreds of miles. It's got big mills. It's got open huts. It's got blast furnaces. And way up at the peak of this structure are the really big movers the prime movers, the general superintendent. I mean, you laugh. Let me tell you, a guy's a general superintendent of a steel mill. This is at least a lieutenant general. I mean, a general superintendent. Superintendent in charge of production. And I'm a mail boy, see. And these names on the envelopes were just sort of hallowed names. And every day, I would would be in the I'd be in the mail room, you know, we're, we're sorting the mail. There's six of us. And we had to know everybody in the steel mill who ever got any mail. Important guys. The general superintendent. The superintendent in charge of blast furnaces. The superintendent of the open heart. Yeah. And the, the chairman of the board. Can you imagine that? I mean, it's beyond imagining that these aren't real men. They don't put socks on You know, you just can't imagine the chairman of the board hollering, I ain't got no clean underwear today! What am I going to wear to the office? You just can't imagine him in real life doing that stuff, you know. Or waking up in the morning and he's shaving. I can't imagine the president shaving in the morning. I just can't. Shaving and cutting himself. He looks and the blood flows. And he's using a super stainless steel blade. And he saw it on television. You know, he just like all the rest of you. Notice those guys on TV shave like this? Talk on, you know? You ever tried that, Dad? Whoo! I mean, half an ear comes off, you know? Big chunks. It's like your carbon summer sausage, you know? Oh, yeah, you know, and here's the president. He cuts himself shaving. And he, he's, he's been using the same blade for six weeks. You know, you can't imagine the president living like that. I mean, who, do, who goes out and buys, say, the president's uh, toothpaste? you imagine him? Never think of that kind of life. Well, that is the way it was in the steel mill. And every day I would have these names, like superintendent in charge of works. How's that for a name? In charge of works. And I would come up to his office, see... And there'd be this square glass, and I would just say, "Works, superintendent." Stainless steel, just a little sign, and I would go in, and there'd be soft carpeting. You don't think of this in the steel mill, do you? And you hear music play, and it's kind of perfumed in there, and they've got this Danish furniture all around. And I've got a steel helmet on. You know, you know, when you're when you're working in the steel mill, you, you wear helmet, goggles. I've got my my sheepskin coat on. You wear it summer and winter in the steel mill. The crud is coming down. I got my safety shoes, and I come in with my little bag of mail. See, I walk in, and here's the work See, And here's this girl, and she's sitting there. She's one of these beautiful girls. It's the first receptionist I ever met. You know, my idea of a receptionist were these tall, skinny girls that worked in dentist's office. This is a real receptionist. Beautiful girl, She's got seven phones, one of them pink. One of them is connected directly to the Kremlin. <laughs> oh, yeah, and another one goes directly to the White House. This is the work, superintendent. And I have his little bag of mail, see. I come in, I say, <laughs> uh, uh, I put it down. How's uh, Mr. Gillies today? <laughs> and she'd look up at me and she'd say, very well, thank you. Then I'd go out, see, and I thought kind I was in touch with the infinite.
1: <laughs>
0: it's like arriving at the gate of heaven and you knock, you got mail for God, see. <laughs> and you say, how's the chief today? And St. Say Peter says, very well, give me the mail, please. He's feeling good today. And you walk away, Peter, you've got the inside dope, see. And I would walk through the steel mills that, you know, I have been in Mr. Gilly's office. All, all the other workers, millions of workers worked in the steel mills who didn't even know that such a man existed. They, did, they were so low on the scale that they didn't know there was a work superintendent named Mr. Gillies. You got the scene? Every day I go in there and I get excited. And then the next minute I'd be in the superintendent of the blast furnace. How do you think he looks? Do you think he looks like, oh, like a Wallace Beery? Yeah, you get the idea of blast furnace. The superintendent in charge of blast furnaces... Looked like David Niven.
1: <laughs>
0: he was a man of exquisite sensibility and taste. A man reputedly owning three yachts that were always at ready in the Chicago Harbor. And so you never get close to this guy. The superintendent in charge of the open heart. How did he look? He looked like... Do you remember... Do you ever see pictures of Judge Lewis Stone when he played Andy Hardy's father? He looked like a Supreme Court justice. And so every day I'd go into these guys, and every two weeks, here is the denouement. I would get my paycheck. Well, I was on the monthly payroll, which meant that I got a cool $86 a month. I was considered an executive trainee. That's a very fancy phrase for serfdom. You know, that gets around a lot of those laws, you know. And and, and I was an executive trainee, a mailboy, boy, you know, I was running back and forth with us with the safety shoes and the goggles and stuff. And every two weeks on a Friday, I would get my check. And it was a two week check, see. And I would get my check at like forty one dollars less six cents for social security. You know, something like that. Four cents off for laundry. They would take a dollar and a half off for broken safety glasses. Little things like that. And I would have my check, it would say 3697. And I'd open it up and it was green. And it said Mr. Gene Parker Shepherd, serial number 1417236, executive trainee, $37. I would take my money. There was a lot of those, see. I'm just a kid working there in the summertime. All excited I tuck it in my watch pocket, and I go running on with my mail, see? All right, you got the scene. One day, I get my check. It comes. Little flat, simple, unadorned envelope. I stick it in my pocket, and I run over the whole route. And now I'm on my way back, see? It's about two and a half hours later, I'm exhausted, and I take this thing out of my pocket. I'm sitting in the truck. I open it up. It is a check for $1,232, and it is made out to the superintendent of works. I have gotten the wrong
1: paycheck. I
0: got his paycheck, and I can imagine him getting mine. You know, they always have just enough to go around, see. And I got this guy's
1: paycheck, you know.
0: And and at first, you know, I can't believe it. I look at this thing, and I, I'm sitting in the truck with six other mail boys. We're all riding along, and I take a look at this check. It's just twelve hundred dollars. Twelve hundred dollars. I look. This is what this son of a gun got in two weeks. Twelve hundred dollars. Two weeks. And he was never in his office. Yeah, he was always out. He was always on a Caribbean cruise or something. Twelve hundred dollars. And I'm sitting in the truck, and I'm sweating, and I can see the glass furnace out there, and I can see the open heart. I can smell the oil and hear the ground thundering like that, see? And I got this check. There was a moment. What do you do? All right. What do you do? Well, I'm going to tell you what you do. It ain't the same as what you should do. It isn't. It It never is. It's like, what do you think would happen if George Armstrong Custer got that? Thirty-five. Oh, he wouldn't have kept it. No, no. That's what the klutz would have done. Three weeks later, he's in the slam. No, that's what you'd have done, Jack.
1: That's why you're here tonight and not at Sardi's. Oh, no.
0: That is not what George Armstrong Custer would have done. I can see George Armstrong Custer, five minutes after he got the wrong check, he is now in his Sunday suit, all dressed up, and ten minutes later, he is at Mr. Gilly's office, and he says, I have a very important message for Mr. Gilly. and the girl looks up at him and says, is it personal? He looks right in the eye and says, baby, you have no idea how personal it is. (laughs) You tell Mr. Gillies it has to do with his next month's rent. And you tell him it has to do with that chick he's keeping over there on the south side. And you tell him, I've got the necessary. And five minutes later, he's in front of Mr. Gillies. He says, Mr. Gillies, I have something here that I think might be of some importance to you. Now, uh, before I divulge this, Mr. Gillies, maybe you and I ought to talk about my current status. Mr. Gillies, I have a check for $1,200. Are you interested in talking? Well, I suspect there would have been a new Brigadier General. Or at least Mr. Gillies would know his name from that time on. What do you think I did? Why do you think I'm down here in this hole?
1: (laughs) You know,
0: all around, my brain, I got the right thoughts, you know. My brain says, get dressed up and go put the squeeze on that guy. Get out of the mail room and move. And then I start to think, you know, then there's a terrible thing. You know, that awful moment of knowing something you shouldn't know. I knew how much the general work superintendent made to the penny. You shouldn't know that kind of stuff. You know, it's like finding out, it's like, you remember the first time you found out how much your dad made? And it was
1: $32. <laughs>
0: you know, and you heard a big argument at 3 o'clock in the morning about why there couldn't be another set of high tops in this family <laughs> and why you couldn't have a refrigerator. And you don't want to know it. Well, all the way back to the mail room, I got this guy's check seat. I walk in, and here's my boss. And there's six other mail boys. And a mail boy next to me, Freddie Roller. He's sorting the mail. He said, "Here's two for Gillies." And I take two and I throw them up. I said, "Hey, Freddie, I got a raise." <laughs> Freddie says, "You got a raise?" I said, "Yeah, I got a raise. Look at this. I show him the check for twelve hundred dollars." Freddie goes down on the floor. He knew that I knew somebody in the front office. You know. And just like that, I chickened out and I go over to Mr. Moss and I says, Mr. Moss, I think I've got the wrong check. He was my boss and I put it down in front of him and Mr. Moss was white. He looked at the boss's, boss's, boss's paycheck and he was white. He was making $47 a week. I want to tell you that the morale of the mail room went to zero that day. And you know, the funny part of it was that ever since that time when I would go into Mr. Gilly's office, that girl just looked at me with chilly silence. I was the kid who knew how much the boss made. And I learned, if you're ever going to make it, fella, play it big. All the way. We'll be back in five minutes.